As you can see on the screen, um, we're reading from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, and that can be found on page 1,217, sorry, 1,217. So 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Well, thanks very much, Ellie, for reading that. Well, um, it's been some time since I was up here to speak on a Sunday. However, as simply a retired medical statistician, I have been given a very short passage uh, from this letter of Peter. So, surely not so hard, you might think. Um, Perhaps it's very easy. I think we can sum it up like this. Be holy because I am holy. Now you all know what to do? Carry on. Uh, Maybe not. Uh, Not enough, perhaps. Um, I could tell you what one of my granddaughters said would help us to illustrate holiness. She just said, donuts. Hmm. Okay, more helpfully, perhaps. I could clarify who the I is especially as these words, be holy because I am holy, comes to us as a quote. So some verses in Leviticus, an early book of the Bible, will perhaps help. Uh, Leviticus 11, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy, because I am holy. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy, because I am holy. And from Leviticus 19, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So there you have it. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now that we have that sorted, let's just go and do it. Oh, Rob, Rob's not looking, he's looking a bit worried. I think he expects me to speak a bit longer. Okay, let's turn to considering what this means then, particularly what holiness is all about, as that seems to be the driving theme of these verses. And despite my granddaughter's opinion, it does seem to have slightly more to it than donuts. Let me tell you about my friend Lizzie. Relatively shortly after she became a Christian, She was singing Handel's Messiah in a choir in the Royal Albert Hall. As she sang the Hallelujah Chorus, she realized something. She needed to stop smoking. Now, not smoking is not enough to be holy. And I wouldn't want to say it's uh, required either. C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton, two of my favorite Christian writers, both smoked. 
But Lizzie thought that stopping was necessary for her. And she also probably, around that same time, realized she needed to change a number of other things, even though they didn't make her any less a Christian. And those of us here today who are Christians will probably understand where Lizzie was coming from, thinking there are still lots of things to change in our lives, things which make us far from holy at the moment. If you're not a Christian here today, or you're looking into the Christian faith, this particular passage is very much directed at Christians. However, I hope it might be an interesting window into the Christian life, as seen by Peter, a leader in the early church, after having been an early follower of Jesus. And I hope you might see the attraction to living, as Peter writes about here. So having looked at holiness, what's it all about, let's move on to this command to be holy. What can we make of this command to Christians to be holy? Let's go back to the earlier verses of this passage. Here it might help, although I'll put them up on the screen, to have your Bibles open, as Ellie said, at 1 Peter 1 on page 1217. So start with verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. This verse begins with a therefore. And so we need to look a bit further back for the context. If we look at verse 3 in the early part of verse 4, it reads, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And in verse 12, we read, It was revealed to them, that is the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Peter is reminding his readers of the tremendous news and the message of the gospel that they have received, had received. In trusting in Christ, they had been reborn because of God's grace to them, a grace made possible by Christ's death, to deal with their sins, and validated or confirmed by his resurrection. And Peter then said, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So in these earlier verses, Peter has put the focus of his readers on their living hope and not on their current trials or troubles. He doesn't dismiss the realities of hard things in people's lives, as David Todd stressed a couple of weeks ago, but puts them in the context of this living hope. And it's because this isn't easy that our passage begins with therefore. So let's look at verse 13 in a bit more detail. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. 
Now, I'm not an expert, but here I think the ESV translation of this verse is a bit clearer. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here it's clear, we're not to assume that our minds are alert, but we need to take action to make them alert. More literally, this phrase reads, gird up the loins of your mind. Today, as we don't generally wear long gowns that need to be fastened up for active tasks, we'd say, roll up your sleeves to get ready. And being sober-minded appears to be a metaphor for being self-disciplined in speech and conduct. So it's another command to take action. Now, as we read this call to action, there's a real danger in thinking that we're being asked to do this on our own. That it's what we do, our efforts, that will make us holy. However, this verse has to be seen in the light of what is promised if we, by faith, choose to follow Christ. One aspect of this is made clear in the second half of this verse, where Peter writes that as we prepare our minds and live self-disciplined lives, we should be setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But let's now see how that revelation is linked to a resurrection. So a revelation of resurrection. The culmination of God's act of grace in sending Christ to die on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven is the act of grace that we've already seen highlighted in verses 3 and 4, where we read, In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And we also see in these verses that it's the resurrection of Christ that gives us the assurance of this hope. This was brought home to me as a young adult studying in London when I happened to pick up the book Great Lion of God by Taylor Caldwell. I had little opportunity for my childhood Christian faith to develop during my secondary school and undergraduate years. And I suppose I was quite close to being able to let that faith slip away. However, as C.S. Lewis said, to avoid being a Christian, you must be very careful what you read. In my case, this book about the Apostle Paul struck me because I couldn't understand Paul's and the other apostles' faith in the resurrection of Christ in the face of the suffering they experienced because of that faith. It was impossible to understand unless they were absolutely confident of that resurrection. That drove me to research the resurrection more closely myself. And it changed my life. Another illustration of the importance of the resurrection was given to me by my father at the time of my mother's death, when she was three years younger than I am now. Shortly before that, 
both my wife Jane's mother and her sister had died at even younger ages. I asked my father how he was coping with mum's death. He said that he coped through, and he was very thankful for, the opening of the Anglican Order of Service for Burials, which begins with Jesus' words from John's Gospel, chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. All of this is part of the revelation of Jesus Christ mentioned in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It also refers to God's new society and his new world, the new heaven and earth, that in one sense came into being at Christ's first coming, but whose final fulfillment will only be evident when Christ returns. Now, in this in-between time, as we live after Christ's coming and his resurrection and before his second coming, we need to rely on God's help to live as he would want us to do. And throughout the New Testament, we learn that this help is provided through the Holy Spirit. So let's look now briefly at growing in holiness. We are not now holy. But as Christians, we can grow in holiness as we open up our lives to the Holy Spirit. Who we are promised comes to live in us when we accept Christ as our Savior. This is the sanctifying work of the Spirit that Peter mentions at the very beginning of this letter as the means that we can be obedient to Jesus Christ. Although perhaps there also includes the work of the Spirit in bringing us to Christ initially. So when we read that we're to prepare our minds for action, be self-disciplined, and set our hope fully on God's grace, we're to do that in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Thinking about this, I was reminded of the chaplain, Howell Forgey, who was aboard the USS New Orleans when it was under attack by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. As he supported the crew in getting ammunition up through the quarterdeck, and they were getting a little tired, he shouted out, Praise the Lord! And pass the ammunition! Now that phrase put into practice something that the Christian writer and pastor John Stott once said. Faith is not incompatible with the use of means. How do we actually take part in this joint endeavor then? I found it helpful as part of a daily prayer to ask, Holy Spirit, I pray that you will this day fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A prayer like this, combined with some time each day reading God's word, can perhaps provide a basis for God to be at work in our lives and give us the assurance to put our full hope in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And a variety of other things could help. 
Some here have benefited from the biblical counseling course, Real Change. I attended an early version version of this course with limited expectations, I must admit. The challenge to identify and seek to change one aspect of your life based on the insights from the course was just that, a challenge. However, being paired with someone else who wanted to change something in their life for mutual support and prayer made it a more accessible challenge. And I believe it did lead to change. More generally, as you seek to allow the Holy Spirit to be at work in your life through whatever means, it's a great encouragement when you sometimes look back at a situation and realize that you acted or reacted in a way that you would not have done previously. Your natural reactions had been changed. So now we move on to obedience and assurance as our next title. And we'll start by looking briefly at verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. What is described here is in some sense a result of what we've been looking at in verse 13. If we follow the call of verse 13 with the help of the Holy Spirit, then we will be obedient children. Or more literally from the Greek, we will be children of obedience. RVG Tasker has written helpfully about this particular phrase. He writes, The expression is best understood as a Hebraism, that is, a type of expression from the Hebrew language, describing not children of God who are obedient, but those whose mother is obedience, i.e., those whose prevailing spirit is obedience and who are given up to its habitual practice or expression. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit thus enables two things to take place. As Tasker says, it involves no longer doing what we have always done and also becoming something which hitherto we have not been. It involves no longer doing what we always have done and also becoming something which hitherto we have not been. And this takes us back to my friend Lizzie. The stirring that she received to stop smoking for her in the special moment of singing Handel's Messiah was part of her sanctification. She had become a new person. She chose to no longer do what she was doing as part of her process of obedience to Christ. Lizzie's Christian life wasn't plain sailing, but when she died, far too young in human terms, she most certainly did have her hope fully placed on the grace that would be brought to her at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So finally, let's go back to verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. It appears that the main sense in the Bible of the words used for holy in Hebrew and Greek comes from the concept of separation or being set apart 
often in the context of being set aside for the purposes of God. So there's the setting aside of the Sabbath day, which in Genesis 2-3 is said to be blessed by God and made holy. And the holiness of priests in the Old Testament, who were set aside from common tasks and dedicated to sacred ones. However, the term holy is often widely applied in the Bible to an object or person set aside for God's purposes, and particularly in the New Testament, it's also associated with purity and having the right relationship to God. However, holiness, when applied to God, denotes his separateness from the creation and his position above it. We would call this God's transcendence. Holiness also refers to God's moral perfection. For example, in a book in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 13, reads, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing when the writer speaks to my God, my Holy One. And if we look at how Peter uses the word holy elsewhere in this letter, we find the expressions a holy priesthood, a holy nation, and the holy women, used in ways that are similar to its use here in chapter 1. So we can conclude that when verse 15 and 16 refer to Christians being called by God to be holy, it has both the sense of us being set apart to be part of God's new society, And because God is morally perfect, we are also called to live our lives consistent with the moral purity of God. We can be assured of being in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ's death and resurrection. And that is a wonderful act of grace on God's part. In this sense, we can be set apart for God. And that is very much what Katie's baptism this morning is a visible sign of. But the call to moral purity is what might in modern terms be an aspirational goal. We know that in this life we cannot achieve it, but we should be working towards it. A concert pianist may inspire a young child to start learning the piano, but playing well requires a lot of effort and years of practice. And the steps can be small. I know my tennis coach isn't trying to correct all that is wrong with my strokes right away. Lots of small sequential steps are required. A few of these I might even have achieved. However, there are lots of things for me to work on still. In the Christian life, as we've seen, Our efforts can only be made with the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But remember, this aspirational goal of holiness differs from other aspirational goals that you might have. Why? Because it's a goal that will be achieved. It will be achieved when God's holiness is fully revealed in the promised new heaven and earth, a new creation that will be completely characterized by righteousness. In the meantime, we who are Christians, who rest in the assurance of salvation through Christ's death, 
should make every effort, insofar as we're able, to let God's Word and the Holy Spirit direct our lives so that we can fulfill our calling to be set aside for God's righteous purposes. A prayer. Dear God, in our weakness, help us to do this. And thank you that this calling is available to anyone who chooses to follow your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.